Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this inaugural lecture, Professor Rob Price discusses crystals, particles and powders. Thank you. Um, it's lovely to see some familiar faces and my family are here as well. Hopefully um, they can understand uh, at least this slide and a few other slides. I've, I've, tried, uh, <laughs> I've tried to simplify it as much as I can and uh, stick with me as long as you can, okay? Um, uh, my interest really is involved in, as, as David mentioned, the behaviour of particles, particularly particles. But all pharmaceutical products are basically made by synthesis of a molecule. You then crystallise it. You have to make a crystal, like a sugar crystal. We then have to process that crystal into a particle which has the right functionality. So normally we have to make it smaller. And then, in order to deliver it to the patient, we have to blend it with other powders, with other, with other materials, in order to formulate it. And what we are very much interested in is the behaviour from the crystal through to the particle and basically through to the powder. So it's the job lot, basically, uh, what we're really interested in. Uh, and as David said, um, we're very much interested in the surface properties of materials. So the word surface will prop up uh, time and time again. And my background and my PhD supervisor, Gary, is here. Uh, we, we started work on surface science back in, I forget when it was, actually. Um, and I've really carried on with our theme. But although I've gone into different areas, it's basically still really the same theme. Um, if you want me to summarise in our cartoon what we really are interested in, we really are looking at the, trying to discover what makes the thing nitty-gritty. Literally, work out what happens on a single particle level, so sub-microscopic sometimes, some even smaller than that, and then look at the bigger system. So we look at the causes and the effect. So we're looking at the very small things, the physics, basically, of what happens down here at this microscopic level, and then really try and measure what goes on macroscopically. Most people ignore the microscopic side. They just try and get powders and work on them, and they all kind of fail, and they don't really understand why they fail. And that's really where the scientists clearly get involved. Um, you need to know a couple of things, okay? So there's words which, which, you, really, which you have to know. Uh, these are basically it, okay? Um, the word micro is, is small, I think, in Greek. Uh, Nicolette will probably tell me I'm right. Uh, and basically, that, that, this kind of um, uh, is used to say it's 10 to the minus 6 of an SI unit. So let's say metre. Okay, one metre is one millionth of a metre, right? So you can't really scale it down to one millionth of a metre. But your hair, if you take one out and put it in a microscope, is around 100 microns, okay? So with a micron scale, you can just about find a few examples, which I'll highlight in a second. We then get down to nano, so this is now dwarf in Greek, and now we're down to a billionth of whatever, so a billionth of a metre, as an example here. We normally use these terms here, 10 to minus 6 is a million, 10 to minus 9 uh, is a billion. Now, it keeps going down. Pico, they run out the Greek letters and the words, so they actually use pico, which is Spanish for small, that's 10 to the minus 12, and you keep on going. But I, I generally stop on, on the nano scale, okay? So, uh, but we're very much interested in particles at this scale, and um, basically what happens with the surface on a nanoscopic scale. So to us, a micron is big, okay? Nano is, is, is where we're at. Um, the nanoscale is defined as objects which are basically smaller than 100 nanometers in size. Not just one nanometer is spread over 100 nanometers. And the physics and the chemistry of materials change at this size range. So you can make unique things happen. 
uh, if you can get down to that particular size, okay? So just remember micron or micro, I'll, I'll probably use micron. Micron is one micrometer, okay? So we just use micron for that. Here's an example of, of basically the scales we're working at. So if you took some fine beach sand, some good quality sand bunker kind of sand, they're around 100 microns in diameter. Human hair, depends where you're measuring it, it's between 50 and 70 microns. But the stuff I'm really interested in is these red little particles here. Okay? So these particles get, can get into your lung. So these are the particles we need to make in order to get them into the lung. Your, your, your lung is very good at removing particles greater than about 10 microns in size, the blue ones. Okay? They actually get deposited in the back of your throat. But the lung allows us to deliver particles smaller than this. Uh, you can see here, PM here is particulate matter, and here is two and a half year. Now, these are measured routinely since the Clean Air Act in the, in the late 1950s. Uh, we, we measure the, the properties of these from air pollutions and allergens. Here you can see what's happened to the lung. The lung has evolved over tens of thousands of years, uh, and it's allowed us very narrow windows of opportunity. So we can deliver, for example, asthma COPD. We want to deliver to the conducting airways. So basically where the bronchi and the bronchioles are, and we, oops, we want to make particles in the size range between 2 microns and 7 microns. If you're in that kind of area, you can deliver a therapeutic dose. Anything higher, it just gets swallowed, back of the throat gets swallowed. Anything smaller than 2 microns potentially can get delivered right down the, in the periphery of your lung. And that's where you've got the whole cardiac output of your, of your heart going through capillaries where the alveoli are, and we get systemic delivery of drugs here. So if I want to target the blood, get it into the bloodstream, uh, I would need to make particles smaller than this here, okay? Uh, but we generally are targeting local um, uh, delivery for treatment of asthma and other airway diseases. Here's, here's a picture, really, uh, where, where we're also measuring particle sizes you, you probably won't even know where the one in Bath is, okay? Uh, since the Clean Air Act, we've got emissions, okay, from cars, various other things. It's actually a lot cleaner now than it was back in the 50s. Um, but this is the monitoring station here at Chepstow. This sure is in the audience here. Uh, I took this the other day. Um, this one here is actually measuring particles less than 10 microns because they can get into your lung and airways. And these are measuring particles less than 2.5 microns, which basically can get into your systemic delivery. So this is measuring the amount of, of particulates which are entering. These are normally counters. You just count them, okay? Now, Bath being a World Heritage City, you know, uh, this is literally the main road into Chepstow. Uh, you can't find where the one in Bath is, okay? And I literally took ages to find it. It's actually here. It's up in this area here, three metres high here. And you can I zoomed in. I took a picture of it, right? And it has a vacuum pump, okay? And I was thinking, where the hell do they measure this, right? It's in the basement of the antique shop. So all the gubbins here is actually held underneath, underneath the ground because of the status of the city, okay? But clearly, you can see how dirty this, uh, this, um, this wall is here. This is Bath Stone, of course. Bath is actually the second highest polluted city in Britain. Oxford is first, followed by Bath. It clearly depends where you put these things, okay? This is on London Road, uh, the main road in through Bath, okay? Uh, and, and the boroughs of London, of course, they come thereafter, okay? So it's a very highly polluted city. Basically, if you live there, if you walk around there, they reckon it's equivalent to about 70 cigarettes a day that you would be inhaling in terms of particular kind of material. 
Um, other things which causes asthma, this is the most common one, this is a house dust mite. Now, it's not the mite itself, but it's the poo from one of these, okay? And the poo from one of these, the particle size is between one to three microns, but it contains digestive enzymes, proteases, so they can cause an inflammatory response, and it's thought to be the biggest cause of, uh, of asthma. And, and UK has got the highest incidence of asthma. Second country in the world, which you'll never guess, is New Zealand. They think it's genetic as well, okay, in terms of what, what, why we can uh, get this. Um, now we're on the nanometer scale, okay? I haven't got an object to show you at the nanometer scale. We don't really, we're not really interested in objects too much on the nanometer scale. We like to put them on bigger particles, if anything. But this is the Nobel Prize for Physics in 2010. And this sounds very, very simple, okay? What they did, this is, this is a cartoon, I actually didn't use a pencil. This is kind of graphite here from a, a graphite pencil. They used a single crystal of graphite, a crystal, okay? Well, we'll come on to what that is in a second. And what they wanted to do was get one single crystalline layer. So what they thought the best thing to do is do scotch tape, okay? And what they did, they just kept removing layers of this graphite from, okay, this is the paper here, but it's a crystal, and they kept taking it off. And they needed about 20 to 25 strips. So every scotch tape, they took another one on top of the scotch tape, took it off. And basically, they were able to isolate this thing here. And they were able to image it, and they could see the height here between the substrate surface here and this height here is uh, 0.9 nanometers, okay? So that's 0.9 billionth of a meter, which is basically the height of the carbon atom forming that layer, okay? And what they found was they actually found a new material. Now, they didn't win the Nobel Prize for being able to image it and find it. Actually, it's the properties of the, what they call graphene, which is important. It has wonderful thermal and electrical conductivity, it's very durable, very tough, and now we can be vapor deposited. Okay? So we can actually now vaporize silicon carbide and deliver this as a coating, very, very thin. And everybody's been aiming to do microelectronics on flexible membranes, okay? and potentially uh, this area uh, will open up. And again, it's to do with this nanostructure here. Okay? And this is a crystal. Okay? Crystals are made by order. They have long-range order. You see these things just repeating themselves all the way along, that's long-range order. If they're all over the shop, then they're not called crystalline, they're called amorphous materials. Now, that image, that 0.9 nanometer image, was only made available uh, by another uh, Nobel Prize-winning technology or technique, which is what I actually use. Um, when I first worked with Gary, the first kind of STMs, as they were known, came onto the market. So this was in the 1990s. What I've been using is the scanning probe microscope. That came out just in the right time for me, okay? So it's a bit of luck, you know, you, you hit the career at the right time. So these commercial systems came available, and the time I got there, they were very good. They weren't very good before. So timing, I guess, is everything. And they were able to measure these properties. You can get nano-resolution on surfaces, and it really opened up the science of nanoscience and nanotechnology. Now, how does it work? Um, it's quite simple, in essence. It's like a record player. Just remember a record stylus, okay? Some of you remember it. Um, what, you, what you have to do, there's your sample there, okay, underneath here, okay? Your sample is sitting. We can literally, no sample preparation. We can do it, literally, we could do it to you, okay? We just put the sample on, on this, on this crystal here. And it's called a piezoelectric crystal. So if you get a voltage, you can make it move, and you can control that. So what we generally do is move it in the X and the Y direction. 
The Z direction is, is very important to control, and that's where the uniqueness of this comes in. The Z, the vertical direction, is controlled by this measurement here between the interaction of a, of a probe with a sample. So the probe comes into contact with the sample, and due to repulsive forces, it actually starts to deflect it. It's like it's a bit complex, okay? But you get a deflection. So you basically have a sharp probe here on a spring-like cantilever, and we measure the deflection. So as you bring it in, it hit, it comes, and then it deflects, okay? And you measure that deflection by pointing the light of the laser at the free end of this cantilever here, and you collect the light here. And that's measuring the movement of the deflection of the cantilever. And what it does, it says, well, in order to keep a constant deflection, that's the aim, okay? You want to keep a constant deflection. In order to do that, that sample has to move down. So it tells it how, long, how much to move down by. And why, when it tells it, we record that. And when we record that, that's the Z height which we measure. And we can quantify that. So we get a quantitative measurement of the height as well as what we program into the X and the Y. And basically, we can reconstruct any surface of interest, okay? Now, it, it doesn't like flat surfaces. It doesn't like mountains, okay? It doesn't like very rough surfaces. So ideally, it likes smooth surfaces. And basically, you know, these, the resolution of this is, is orders of magnitude better than optical microscopy. Your naked eye cannot see less than 10 microns. So anything less in the atmosphere, with loads of them around here, we can't see them at the moment, okay? They're less than 10 microns. Here shows an image which we took. Now, we can now jump onto things, okay? This is what I like. Uh, this is a starch particle, which is an excipient, which we use in tabletin. It's used as a disintegrant. It swells when you give it water. What we did, we took a 10-micron-sized particle, quite small. We, we cut it in half, jumped on the surface. You don't really see too much here. But there's a family of techniques, and this is called phase imaging. And this starch is made up of two polymers, a mylopectin and alpha amylose. And what you can see here... Oops. You can see here, I'll do it again, um, you can see here the individual polymer chains. So you can see the amylopectin chains, the polymer chains here, which is embedded within the alpha amylose of the starch particle. So we can see where the two ingredients are within that particular structure. Uh, again, this is only three microns across, okay? So from there to there is three microns, and from there to three uh, microns. You can see the resolution is at the nan nanoscopic scale. Now, there's another member of the audience here, Martin McLaughlin and I, we spend many a night uh, working on this AFM. Now, to do this, we had to work very, with vibration-free. Basically, the universities are shut at five in them days. We used to come back in, and we used to be here till about midnight, if not later than that. Okay? But it all stopped when I had a bicycle accident, and Martin had another bicycle accident when he killed a badger coming down the hill. And that kind of curtailed our kind of work uh, for, for a while. But what, what we were interested in doing was understanding a big problem. There was a big discrepancy between theory and experimental. I'm going to highlight that in a second. First of all, crystal, we're not going to go into how crystals nucleate, okay, because that gets quite complex. But basically, these grow, okay? And the way they are thought to grow, which is true to a certain extent, is you form, this is the crystal, okay, here, you form a nucleus. And that nucleus there either can be stable or unstable. So this may only need one more molecule to attach. It makes it stable, thermodynamically stable. If it is stable, it grows. If it's unstable, it just dissolves again. So these things get made and they dissolve or they, they stay and they keep on growing, okay? So you can see here, this is a video. We're now able to do this in liquid, okay? This is a, actually a protein lysozyme. 
Uh, and you'll see here, hopefully this will work, you see it started growing, and you see another one being formed on top of it, and it starts to grow. And this is how we all thought crystals grew. This nucleation, it's called growth, uh, 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 birth, sorry, birth and spread model, and a layer-by-layer layer model uh, of the way this grows. However, there's a discrepancy. If we decrease the amount of feed material hitting that surface, I need to give it away then, um, hitting that particular surface, you could, theoretically, you can't make a stable nucleus. So it basically stops growing. But when we did the experiments, and I must say people before us did all, all those kind of experiments, they found that there were, high, there were high rates of growth going on. So there was a big discrepancy. The discrepancy between theory and experimental was basically the age of the universe. It shouldn't grow, and the measurements were very large. Okay? And one of our heroes, one of his heroes, is, is Sir Charles Frank, who is a professor of physics at the University of Bristol. And why is he a hero? Because he theoretically worked out what went on before we had any experimental data. That's what, that's what I like theorists to do, okay? is to come up and solve these problems, and then the experimental data kind of backs it up. And what he said was, uh, if, you, if you grow a crystal, you always have impurities there. You always have fluctuations in temperatures, and you have solvent inclusion. And that causes stress within the crystal. And the crystal itself doesn't like that, so it basically goes, I need to get rid of this stress. So it dislocates. It actually makes a defect or a fault line. Think of earthquakes, okay? It makes a fault line because of the stresses within that system. Now, you, we're able to measure, or actually image these. Again, uh, Martin and I went to Darsbury on the synchrotron radiation lab. It was in very uh, chromatic X-ray beams. And you can see here, this is actually, we think, is a solvent inclusion, and you can see the defects coming out here. But what um, Frank did, he said, ah, these dislocations could be the source of growth of the crystals when the feed material becomes limited. And what he said was, uh, it's actually a screw dislocation. It's pinned at this particular point here. And what generally happens with the screw dislocation, uh, the difference between here and here may be one molecular unit cell high or even half of it, whatever. So there's a difference in the step here between here and here. And what he said was the molecules will be able to attach on this particular side here. Okay, that's nice. But he actually went further. And he said, well, what happens is it'll grow out and it get to a critical length, this length here, which, which, which we can measure. And then what he says is once it gets to that critical length, it can move out in this direction. So that starts to grow in that direction. Then this becomes a critical length and it can grow in that particular direction. And basically, you end up going round and round and round and you make a growth spiral. So it literally is a spiral. And then that's the way it happens. So the growth carries on going. It doesn't need to nucleate on the surface. It just literally uses the dislocations uh, to do that. Okay? Uh, and we're able to image them. Okay? So we can now jump onto crystals with this atomic force microscope. Find where, we have to, you have to find them. They're just not potluck because where they are. You basically have to follow them, and you get to the center. So the growth of that is dominated by this dislocation. Okay? Now, there's the screw dislocation here. This is rotating anti-clockwise. It's going back on itself in that particular manner here. Okay? The distance between here and here is a function of how much material we give it. So if we give it more, it goes faster and they can become tighter. If we get less, it gets broader. And that allows us to do a lot of physics. Okay? So we, it's not just pretty pictures that we did here. Okay? The other thing is the chemistry in this face here and this one here is different. So the, the molecules here attach themselves to a different rate to this one here. That's why the shape of this is not circular. So chemistry also plays a particular role here. And again, 
or I should say, the height between here and here is 1.3 nanometers. So again, a billionth of a meter between here and here. This is just like a step ladder, okay? Just keeps coming down. Um, this is what we used to do, okay? We still use this technique, optical interferometry is called. We can start to see where they are here, and this is a macroscopic measurement. So that's all we could do before, was measure the macroscopic properties of the growth of the crystals. But what we were able to do was actually go, okay, I'll take you out, I'll put you in the AFM, and actually you can see why you're growing as fast as you're growing, okay? So basically, we can jump on that area there, and we can see what goes on here. These ones, are 22 of them working together. So these are powerful, okay? And, and again, the more powerful you are, you, you win the day, okay? At the end of the day, these will dominate everything else, and these are actually rotating in a clockwise fashion, not the anti-clockwise fashion. Now, we also did some mistakes, generally because the bar was very near to where this instrument was, and, and we used to get... Uh, uh, a, a few points when we did this because uh, it took a long, long time. These were taking kind of eight to ten hours experiments, okay? And this is one of the mistakes I did, but it actually ended up being a quite a nice thing, okay? What I did, I, I, I ploughed, you know that probe, the sharp one, I just went in a bit too hard, well, actually a lot too hard, and I took a bit of the crystal out, okay? And when you see, it will come out, and it look like a pyramid, right, when you see it, and it lands here, and it'll grow, okay? But then the surface will become flat, I'll just look out for these, okay? One, two, three, four, five. Watch them just come up uh, through the, the surface. Here it is. There's, there's the pyramid. They see it becoming flat. And eventually, you have to zoom out in the end. You can see that those five come through. And now you can start to see how it starts to wind again, okay? So you're actually seeing how that crystal actually is, is growing. And that's the only mechanism that grows. There's no nucleation there at all. And this one is where we did another mistake earlier on, uh, before, uh, before trying that one. Okay, um, at that particular juncture, I was very much interested in fundamental science, okay? And then um, one Thursday afternoon, I think, uh, a professor from pharmacy came over and said, do you fancy coming to work on another problem? We kind of like what you do, and uh, we like the approach, and we want to measure the properties of respirable-sized particles and what controls them. So it only took a few months later, my contract was nearly up, uh, and, and I decided to, to jump ship and actually go into pharmaceutics. But all of the things I kind of learned from the surface science days stayed with me and actually applies even more today than they did uh, at, at that particular time. Now, the aim really has been, uh, or what, what the, the focus of the next couple of slides are really, is why has Olung allowed us a narrow window of opportunity? You know, it's dealt with everything, okay? But why doesn't it have to filter out two to seven micron-sized particles? That's a physicist in me asking the questions, right? And the answer is, it's never been exposed to them. Because only now, with pollutants and air conditioning and all these kind of allergens uh, which are produced from mines and everything, uh, asbestos and all these kind of things, uh, all of these is what's caused asthma and CUPD. Before that, these, par these particles didn't go into the lung. Why? Again, there's a physics answer to it. And the answer is here, okay? Basically, everything is dominated by gravity. Everything you and I know, if I throw this up in the air, what's going to happen? It's going to come back down again. Newton's apple, okay? Everything is dominated by gravity. But when you get to a smaller and smaller particle size, this force of gravity, which is a function of mass, uh, and volume, because the sphere is actually r cubed, so you can work out that the gravitational force here, this is the index here, this is high, this is low, this is starting to decrease. 
But something else kicks in. There's a composite of other forces comes into play. You, you don't know it, okay? You and I don't know what this is, okay? We don't, we don't feel it every day of the week. But generally, these come into play, and when we're down to the 2 to 10 microns, you can see there's a significant difference. So particles of this particular size, gravity doesn't do anything, okay? And you see them, okay? Steam from a kettle, cigarettes. Where does the smoke go? It doesn't go down, it goes up, okay? So you see that behavior, but you don't realize that the gravity is not doing anything to it, and it's just being carried away in the air currents. So the forces which play a role are these here, okay? Now, the van der Waals force uh, is constant. It's always there, and it's always attractive in air. So when two particles come together, they'll always have an attractive force. The capillary force, water is generally thought to be a lubricant. When you get below kind of 10 microns, water is a glue. So the water, the condensation of water from the atmosphere between these two surfaces will induce cohesion, stickiness of the material. If we rub it, the electrostatic forces kick in as well. Okay? Now, these two forces we can play with, normally by humidity. If the humidity is low, it dominates. That's why you get electric shocks in the winter, right, when it's dry. Capillary likes water. The more humid it is, the capillary forces. So these things are always moving and shifting, dynamic. This one is always there. We can actually get rid of this and this if we're careful, but that one you can't get rid of. It's always there, okay? And that's why, um, and these particles here below here are very, very sticky because nothing helps them to get off, okay? So if I just take, for example, here on the blackboard here, chalk, particle size, four and a half microns. Why does chalk stick to the blackboard? Why doesn't it fall off? Sticks, the van der Waals force and capillary forces. So if I do this, there's four and a half micron sized particles, okay? I can't get rid of it. <laughs> I can't even blow it off, okay? It's very difficult to remove these particles. So the van der Waals forces, capillary forces, are, are holding those particles on there, and clearly I have to wash my hand to get the chalk particles off, okay? Now, some animals, I, I, I like looking at nature, okay? And we'll find a few examples in a second. And nature can utilize this understanding better than we could until recently, okay? Gecko, okay? You all know geckos can climb walls, they can climb ceilings, okay? Now, they weigh about 50 grams, okay? They're quite big, they can generally be quite big. They shouldn't really stick to walls because the gravitational force should pull them off. So those van der Waals forces, capillary forces, electrostatic forces, um, have to overcome that. So it, this force here, is pulling it down, okay? So it... The force this way has to be greater than that to give it any chance to stick into that particular wall, okay? So that, that's the way it does it. It doesn't do it. Everybody thinks, oh, it's got mucus. It's got some special thing that comes out and, and it's like glue, okay? It doesn't. It's dry contact. So how does it do it, okay? It's quite important. And again, physics plays a role here. Okay, this is the way it does it, okay? This is the foot one foot of a gecko. If you zoom in on there, it's got millions of hairs, okay? They're called seti. One animal is about six and a half million of them, okay? And the seti themselves, this is the microscopic kind of scale here, you can see these bundles here at the end of this, okay? And if you zoom in even further, you can actually see the nanostructure. There's one micron there, okay? 500 nanometers is half of one micron. And you can see they're very, very small, okay? So... These little hairs and little bundles at the end have nano, we call them, I call them nano hairs, okay, on the end, okay. 
And each one of those nanohairs, each one of them, can generate a force of 20 nanonewtons. And we use this a the AFM probe, which I'll show you in a minute, to measure that, okay? And if you multiply that by the number, basically, it only needs one centimeter squared to generate 10 newtons of force. So literally, it doesn't even need four feet on a wall. It only needs one centimeter, less than one centimeter squared. And you can see these things hanging from walls. The adhesion is very, very uh, powerful, okay? However, it's got to do something in order for it to work, right? And, and this is the important thing. In order for it to work, it's got to mold itself to whatever surface. So that wall looks smooth to you and I. If I use an AFM, an image, that, that would be rough as 10 bears, as we say in wheels, right? So it'd be very, very rough, okay? So what the, what the set die, the nano hairs have to do, they've got to get in there. They've got to get right into the structure of the wall, okay? On the nanoscopic level. And that's what I meant to replicate. These are the hairs here. It can get into it, okay? Now, how close to the wall does it have to get for the Van der Waals to kick in? This is actually the measurement using an AFM, which we use. It's, it's basically five nanometers. So that one hair, if it's not within five nanometers of the wall, it doesn't stick. It has no stickiness at all, okay? Once you get to five nanometers, it's literally like, chum, it pulls you in. You don't have to do any more work. You only got to get me to five nanometers, and it does the rest. The Van der Waals force is quite strong, but only acts over a very small distance. So you've got to get in there for it to work, okay? And that's how the gecko actually does it. Also, to its advantage, of course, is I, if you're that sticky to something, how the hell do you get off, okay? So, but the only thing it has to do is actually remove its back. It literally does this. He only has to remove that five nanometers and he's off, right? Even he, so he can peel his, his, his way off any particular surface by just removing between that. And then he doesn't feel anything again, okay? So he's working on the nanoscopic level, okay? Although clearly he's a macroscopic body, okay? And that's basically the gist of what I do, is understand the nanoscopic, microscopic structure and how does it relate, not to geckos, okay, but the particles that we deliver to the lung, right? And the Van der Waals force is all to do with contact area. You, if you want to make it strong, you want maximum. If you want to make it weak, which I basically want to do, you want to make it as less as you can, okay? But you're working over these very, very small distances for that to work. Now, the guy who won the Nobel Prize in 2010 actually came up with a gecko sticky tape, okay? So this is actually sticky tape here. Dry, no stickiness, no glue on there, okay? It's literally just nanostructures that he's made. Uh, uh, Spider-Man was about 50 grams, weight of a gecko, and, and again, he was able to uh, stick you know, Spider-Man uh, onto various walls. And all the Navy and the Army research groups in the US are desperate for this type of technology to climb walls and what have you, and climb buildings and get the soldiers into things, okay? Um, we can learn a lot from, from nature. The area is called biomimetics. I use it. I, I'm not a biomimeticist, I don't do it as a living, but I, I really do uh, really like reading these articles to understand the, the basic physics behind it. Now, leaves is another example. They self-cleaning, okay? So it's the structure of the leaf. It's called the lotus effect. Uh, it's the structure and the hydrophobic. It doesn't like water, right? So it repels the water. And what they do is it plays with this nanostructure to ball up the water and get it to clean the leaf as well. So dust on there, you get the ball of water, you get the inertia going, and you can actually clean it, okay? And Pilkington have actually released, uh, for mainly for very tall buildings, which you don't want to clean every day, they've, they've got a coating which has very similar properties to the way a leaf works. So they're self-cleaning. 
Now, it doesn't work with um, bird poo, okay? It doesn't work, but it works with all the dust and all the micro kind of particles and dust particles that deliver onto these surfaces. Okay, so that's the kind of the background, really. And I'm going to concentrate, really, on, on the areas of interest to me. Now, this area is worth a lot of money, okay? And, and, and that makes research very important, particularly for the bigger areas of growth, okay? And the biggest one has been asthma, okay? So 50% of inhaled products equates to around 21 billion at the moment. Uh, it's going to grow to about 25 billion by about 2015. And you can see it's taking 50% share of the market. Now, smokers, of course, are falling into this category of COPD, okay? Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And this is the growing market. So pharmaceutical companies have kind of generally stopped working in this area in terms of finding new molecules are targeting this area because all the smokers are clearly don't give up smoking and then they're going to get into that problem and then we have to find a treatment for them. So up till now, we've been giving them the same treatment as we have been for asthma, but that is generally changing and the big research is being pushed in these areas. These other areas here of interest, I generally don't get involved in these. We have doubled a bit in diabetes. We'll explain that uh, in, in a second. Okay, why do we want to deliver to the lung, okay? Now, what the advantage is for local diseases, okay? So you've got smooth muscle contraction, for example, in asthma. We can deliver anti-inflammatories, steroids. We can anti-relievers, beta-2 agonists, to, directly to the site of action. What the advantage is, is the onset is very rapid. Also, if we don't get them below two microns or half a micron, we don't get them into the alveoli, so we don't get systemic delivery and get the side effects from the drug. So basically, we can reduce the side effects. And the other advantage is we, need, we can get away with very small doses. So here's an example, salbutamol. An oral tablet, you basically need four times 10 to the minus three. The milli is uh, 10 to the minus three, a thousandth of a gram, okay? Um, if you took it, you'd have to dissolve, you'd have to absorb, your, your, your liver kind of tries to metabolize it. By the time you get a therapeutic action, you're looking at about 30 minutes. The inhaler, the equivalent inhaler, you only need 200 times 10 to the minus 6 of a gram, okay? Uh, so you need a very small dose of this, and the onset of action is very, very rapid within one or two minutes. And if you have an asthma attack, clearly you want to relieve it into as quick as you can. You also have the opportunity to go bypass the airways, so bypass the, the, the function of the structure of the lung and get it down into the alveoli. And basically, if you think of a tennis court, okay, just think of a big tennis court, that is the area you've got available in the alveoli. The rest of the airways, which is trying to trap everything, is basically the size of a normal-sized towel on that floor. So the area, your airways, if you look at the area of it, it's nothing. In the alveoli, you've got the tennis court. So basically, if you can get down these very small paths, these bifurcations and the bronchioles, you've got a cavernous space at the end, okay? And there's not much difference between the wall of the alveoli and the blood, the capillaries of the blood. The whole cardiac output is pushed through that capillary. So we can get rapid absorption if we can get... Oops, we can get them there. We can get rapid absorption into the circulation. We avoid the liver. We go straight into the blood, and off we go. And we can have that effect. And... Potentially, compared to other routes, we can't deliver insulin by oral means, for example. We can increase the bioavailability of the drug by taking this particular route rather than having an injection, for example. Okay, so a lot of time, effort, money has gone into this. Okay? It's still ongoing. Diabetes is the one which everybody's going for. Pfizer, 
um, actually produced this. Uh, actually started in the US with a, an academic who left academia, started a company called Nectar. Uh, actually, it was Colin Hale, then Nectar. Then Pfizer got involved. And I remember seeing this with uh, a few people in back in 1997. And this was released a couple of years ago. Big fanfare, worldwide uh, release. Six months it lasted. It was pulled after six months due to various reasons, which, which I won't go into. Uh, but basically, there was a lot of problems, particularly in the US. All the, if you're not having your product in the US, you haven't got a product. Uh, and what I like, I found this on the internet, uh, where, where, where this is now being used, okay? But I, I mentioned it's the biggest, oh, it's the biggest biotech disaster. Um, we, we had somebody the other day from Pfizer kind of roughly told us some numbers, and we're looking at about 10 billion, and still counting, okay? So 10 billion was spent on making that inhaler here and the development of the powders to go into that. And they all went up in smoke within six months. I think they were, they were getting about, they were thinking about 20 million back each year. That was the predicted amount of money they were going to be making, so they canned it very, very quickly. Okay, um, when we are delivering more routine molecules, so let's call them asthma COPD, we're not going for systemic delivery, you've probably all seen these type of inhalers, okay? Now, these are, are, are the first kind of portable-based devices to all people who are involved in pharmaceuticals, we always think they're the best, okay? But they become cheap. Pharmaceutical companies like to make money, so they make things a lot more complex, okay? But all of us who work in this area realize this is still probably the best device uh, available. Now, I've done a lot of work. I just saw Philippe Rogida come in here. Philippe backed me when AstraZeneca wouldn't work with me, and he said, no, no, I want to work with him. So I've done a lot of work on PMDI. He's basically one man. Uh, and he moved to Novartis, and we've carried on that relationship. But the science is quite complex in there. Uh, I, I don't even give the lectures anymore. Richard Guy uh, um, gives those lectures on, on collars and suspensions. But my, my other interest is these more expensive things where you get the money, right? So dry powder inhalers, um, in order for patent protection, people stop people copying them, these devices, every, every company has their preferred device, and they keep tweaking with them to make it very difficult to copy. So generic entry is very difficult in this, in this area. Now, I'm not so interested in the device. I work with people. James is in the audience. We work with James a lot on, on devices. I haven't got a clue. He does it, and, and we work on the powders, and, and we somehow get to an answer uh, uh, at the end. But my, my job, really, is to understand what goes on when we make a formulation. Now, the way I work, once you have the drug, the drug dose is 200 micrograms. You only can weigh 3 milligrams. You can't weigh anything less than that. So we can't put in 200 micrograms. The smallest dose is around 12 micrograms from one of these inhalers. So what we generally have to do is blend it. We have to blend it with a diluent. And the diluent we always use is lactose. Good old lactose. And there's a lact there's John. John's here from lactose. Again, we work with the lactose company. And we understand lactose very well. Okay? But today's focus is going to be on the drug particles. They're expensive. Um, the lactose comes from, uh, it's a byproduct of cheese and whey, and, and we get this, literally, it, it, they'd rather make lactose than, than literally get rid of it. Um, what we then do, what we can do, we want to disperse the drug on the lactose, we can weigh it. So we can't weigh in 2 milligrams, we have to put 12 milligrams or 25 milligrams into a capsule, because that's all human beings can do, okay, is weigh kind of those kind of numbers uh, quite routinely. And the lactose, together with the drug, actually gets fluidized out of the device. The engine of the device breaks it all up, and we want to release the drug particles back to the right size again for delivery into the lung. Okay? 
uh, and we can do various things in order to enhance the deposition uh, and patients like it and all this kind of stuff uh, we can use. Uh, one company in Germany actually don't use lactose, they use glucose, uh, and some people try and play with the forces, which we'll highlight in a second. Okay, uh, I'll quickly go through this. I can see the time is going on. Um, what we're really trying to do, there's the lactose, there's the drug. The aim of the device is to overcome those forces. You need to break the, the adhesion. You have to overcome the van der Waals force, the capillary force, the electrostatic force. The device has got to do a lot of work. The patient drives the whole system. When you inhale, we have to maximise your inhalation breath. We have to get that to work and do a lot of work to overcome the van der Waals force. You've got to do more work than I did to try and blow that off there on a particular surface. What we can see, if you jump onto one of these big boulders of lactose, you see the drug particles all over the surface. So these are the particles we want to deliver. Now, we want to deliver, that we don't want to deliver all of them, okay? Ideally, you do, but what you want to do pharmaceutically is make sure you deliver the same amount today as they did yesterday. So our job pharmaceutically to release these products is to get the same amount coming off, not 100% or 10%. If it's 20 I want it 20, and I want it tomorrow 20, and everything afterwards. Unfortunately, we're not very good at making them. Um, actually, we only know how good they are after we've made them. So we only release them to human beings after they've been made, packaged, and we get somebody to test them by firing them and making sure we've got 20% of the drug going into the lung. If it doesn't, it goes in the incinerator. So it's a, we haven't got good control. We have no control, to be honest, of these systems. But what we are trying to do is work out why we haven't got that control. That's where science comes in again. Okay? So what we're able to do is, let's take that particle there. Okay? Now, that particle is sticking to that surface there by van der Waals force capillary forces. Now, I want to know why that particle will stay on or not come off. So what's controlling its stickiness to the surface and what we can play with, uh, with that uh, system? And we can do it, right? So what we can do, I can take that particle and pick it up. So I can pick it up and I can put it on the end of one of those cantilevers, okay? But I've got rid of the probe, right? I've knocked that off. We can actually buy them without them, okay? And then you can attach whatever you want. So I can attach any particle you want onto the end of, of, of this cantilever here. And what I then do, this red line here is that van der Waals force of the gecko, okay? So we can use gecko, we can put gecko set eye on here if we wanted to as well, okay? So this is, the red one is when it goes up into the surface, and the blue one is the adhesion. So just quickly here, you can see the video. You see the red goes in, boom, there's the van der Waals force. You then get a hysteresis here, and the hysteresis here is the adhesion, how sticky it is to the surface. So we can measure that, by, it doesn't come up very clear here, we can get a measurement. Now we can do that and get a large amount of measurements. The problem was we had got noise. We got a lot of noise. We got a lot of data. What we did um, is actually invent the technology which the pharmaceutical companies now use. So this was done at, at our research group. We realised very, very quickly we needed to look at model surfaces for, for, the, uh, for the drug and the lactose. These have to be very flat. Background, crystallisation. Thank you. Lucky I did that before. Okay? So I was able to engineer these surfaces flat, in order to do this. The drug particle is as it comes. We want to look at real drug particles. And what we were able to do is work out if the drug likes the lactose or if it likes itself more. And that balance is what we do for a living. We basically measure the changes in that balance. And most people don't understand it, okay? So I'll try to simplify it as much as I can. This is an example, okay? 
this is two batches of FP, is a steroid for ticlizum propionate, one of the leading molecules from GSK. Uh, this is academic work, so I can tell you all about it, right? Um, this is batch A, batch B, they look the same, okay? This is the way we used to work in pharmaceutics, okay? It looks the same, probably works the same. Put it in, doesn't, right? Uh, particle size, we, basically the main thing we've been looking at till now is particle size. Okay, roughly the same, let's say they are the same. There's no significant differences in the physical properties of these materials. Now we use this CAB approach, the, the adhesion approach. What you find is, uh, you don't have to worry too much about this, but you can see here, if you go along, 150, 100, roughly 200, twice as sticky, okay? So this batch here, this one, is twice as sticky as batch B. Why? Chemistry. It's what we've done to it, okay? It's the reason why we've had that effect. This goes in the incinerator. And this is what happens, okay? If you look more and more batches, and we've done a lot, we've lost complete control. They're all over the shop, okay? So it depends on the day of the week, where it's made, what you've done to it, you haven't got control on the stickiness of the particles. You're changing the behaviour of the particles. And this is the point where you think, ah, we need an intervention. And that's what we got involved in. First of all, let me just show you why we've lost control. The reason is we're still using primitive technologies. What we have, we have these wonderful crystals here which we can engineer. What do we do? We basically use a pestle and mortar, right? We basically use a micronizer. What it does, particles go into an airflow, we accelerate it to twice the speed of sound, and we let them hit one another. And they fracture, hit the walls, and we basically just keep fracturing the particles down and down and down until we get the right size to put them in the product. And that, if you think about it from a crystal point of view, it doesn't like it, okay? It damages it, it defects it, it has dislocations. We, we, we actually cause a lot of stress to the material, and that material ends up changing the stickiness because of this behaviour. And this, again, this woke up, I guess, the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, the CEOs all read these kind of articles, okay? You know, it's lagging behind those of the potato chip and the laundry soap makers. Now, we only got, in a dry powder formulation, a lactose and the drug. That's all we've got, nothing else. You think we'd be able to solve how to put those two things together. It's not a complex formulation preparation, but it's the properties of the drug particles at the microscopic level which is relating to all the failures. And you would not believe the lengths companies go to in order to try and solve that problem. Uh, most of them don't use these type of technologies, but clearly they end up using them at the end. However, the solution uh, has been actually worked out. If you look in other areas, Rumpf is a very um, uh, eminent chemical engineer. And I went back and looked at his papers, and oh, the answers were there. <laughs> and that's where people kind of don't look, particularly from a f an old pharmacy background, where there wasn't so much of the physics and the chemistry. I might be wrong there, but uh, the, the, a fundamental understanding becomes important. And what he basically said, if you make a product with particles in there, it was, I didn't understand the German of this, but basically he called it dispersity, and that's the chemistry. And he said the dispersity is changes in the particle size. That's the only thing we currently do is control particle size. When you, when you break these particles up into dust particles, you have no control on the shape, no control on the morphology, and forget understanding the, the, what the chemistry is at the interface. We also know that we have to control those forces to get control of the product. So the macroscopic properties, the macroscopic function of that product is based on understanding the forces. 
And we also realize, again, the gecko tells you a lot, that geometry is the, is the central design principle. We have to play with the van der Waals force. We have to play with it. We can't allow very rough particles, not very smooth particles and so forth. We really need to solve that problem. Uh, and here's, an, here's where we are, okay? So this is where we currently are at, micronized drug. Unfortunately, the solution has not got to the market. Uh, we're working with, against the CEO of Prosonics this year. I feel like I'm, I'm talking about everybody in the audience here, but um, it, it, we worked with Prosonics to try and solve this problem. It's taken us seven years, and we get in there, slowly get in there. This is the particle size control. That's what Glaxo have got, Pfizer have got, everybody's got at the moment. They don't have control on the product because of these not there. Companies have, been, have come around. Uh, a lot of them have come around. Some were sold for large sums of money, actually from academic groups. Uh, this one here actually was sold for $100 million, but didn't work. Why didn't it work? It couldn't play with the Van der Waals forces. They were actually more sticky than these particles because there was too much contact with the surface. The Van der Waals forces released the contact, too much contact. They are too flat. So we can't use those particles to get enhanced or controlled benefit for the pharmaceutical formulation. Now, again, lessons come from nature, okay? This is uh, actually from my garden. We, we, we live in the countryside, so that's quite nice. This is a puffball spore here, okay? This is the freely dispersed spores from here. If you take them and you look, image them, what you find is this is respirable. We can, this, be, this will be a drug particle. What it does, instead of maximizing the van der Waals forces, it's separating the bodies, okay? These are, we keep measuring these, they're 248 nanometers, okay? So what I'd really need to do is put 248 nanometer particles on my big particle, make it round, and off we go, okay? Unfortunately, we have to make them the drug particle as well. We can't get away with using anything else. It basically has to be the drug particle itself. And these are freely dispersible. So I could put them on the table, I could blow them off, and off they go into the air, okay? So nature, again, has solved the problem, okay? Now, these are not non... These are not like Teflon, okay? They haven't got low surface energy and makes it non-sticky, okay? Actually, it's just as sticky as an organic compound. Now, this is another example, okay, which... which uh, we went to um, Best Time of America, of course, is a month after September the 11th, okay? So we went to Washington... And it was dead. Literally, there was nobody there except for blackout-windowed cars going around everywhere. We're just kind of tourists. We've been to Denver for the AAPS meeting, and then we, we, we stopped off here. But we couldn't go in anywhere. The, all the Capitol Hill was shut. We got into the Supreme Court of Justice, I think, and they kicked us out. Oh, something's going on here, right? So uh, we then go back to the hotel. There'd been an anthrax uh, um, um, uh, uh, problem scare within the Washington area, actually within the Capitol building itself in the Senate office. And this was basically a few hours later. This is what we saw on the TV a few hours later. So we were just literally there a couple of hours earlier. And what had happened was letters were sent, three letters were sent. A couple of us went to the ABC channel, the news channel. Uh, another one went to the Senate. It looked like it's written from a school child. But in there were the anthrax spores, okay? Five people died in, in the Senate building from the mailbook from the mail sorting area where they moved it. These people had aerolized dispersed anthrax, okay? So the anthrax, they have to have, you have to have quite a big, big dose, actually, to, be, to, 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 uh, to kill you. Seventy people were ill uh, and five died. But the Americans knew very, very quickly that these things weren't straightforward to get that to work. Clearly, we just explained to you that you have to do things to it to get it to work. 
And these are the anthrax spores, okay? It's hard to get images, right? So you've really got to look at the internet to get this stuff, right? Uh, but you see, they're all respirable. <laughs> um, these are respirable. Um, actually, this was released by the US government after this, just to show people uh, what was going on. Um, these are respirable. Again, the surfaces do not suit envelope, open the envelope, pachum, you get the cloud, okay? So these won't get into your lung, right? These are literally will be sticked together like glue. They'd be agglomerated, and they literally would just fall out as a block, okay? But what they found was, and they kind of released this slowly afterwards, this, was the, well, this is the image of an anthrax spore which was found within one of those envelopes. So what they had done, they'd modified it, and they very, very quickly worked out that actually it was their own material, and it was an internal job. It wasn't sent from anywhere else, and they found out it was actually up the road in a biodefense lab, and the guy actually killed himself before he got caught. Allegedly, he did it, okay? But um, he's not here any longer, okay? Um, and what they were able to do was actually add silica particles. Now, we can't add silica particles to our drug particles because we get silicosis, right? So we can't use, I could use this, and we could be, you know, I'd be living in the Bahamas, I'm sure. Um, but what they call it, which, which is the word I like, they call it weaponized anthrax. I don't like it. You know, they just go, what we've done, we've weaponized it. So they've made it work. And, and that's what weaponized anthrax is now defined as. And that's going to stay with me, that one. Um, okay, so just to end, really, what we then thought, right, I've got to solve this problem. I'm going to work on it, okay? You've, you now understand. You understand as much as I understand, actually. Uh, what we need to do, if I can make that, we're off, okay? And that's basically what we tried to go and do. Uh, and we developed a technology which was where, where we tried to do it, okay? What we try to do is make spherical particles and just hope the surface will be rough, okay? And we get some nanostructures thereafter. What we found was we needed to keep them spherical. So when we, we deposit the spherical particles, if you leave it, it'll crystallize, but it'll be square again, which we don't want. So the idea was, shouted it, literally sound, okay? Ultrasound, okay? Literally, we just vibrate uh, the, the liquid around these droplets and induce nucleation crystallization. And hopefully... We keep the spherical shape. So we use ultrasound energy, and that's why we got into bed with ProSonics. We patented it, uh, we licensed it to them, and they've taken it off my hands, thank the Lord. Uh, and they've now developed it and scaled it up. Okay? But what's quite interesting is, is the way we did this. Okay? Um, the way we did it, this is, this is it. Okay? This is the first system we built. Okay? Now, this is an atomizer to make the particles two microns. Right? This is an air. We have to just get it to go in. Right? Uh, we wanted to make it modular, so I thought, ah, plumbing. That's the stuff I can go and buy every day, okay? We need to collect the aerosol droplets, and we can't make it bubble, right? And then one day, I actually tested it in the house, and what I found was the best thing to use, is this going to work, was a bottle of beer, right? So you can see the bottle of beer, just the neck of it there, okay? That neck shape there prevented the bubbling and for it coming back out again. Okay? And for, I, I, I should say this was sponsored by Plum Centre in Chepstow. Right? The guy wouldn't take any money off me. Right? After I explained to him what I was doing and what I was trying to do, I, I was there every single day for months, okay? just literally picking up things. Whatever. I had back I had entrance to the whole thing. I didn't even have to go through the, the front, and I was just picking up whatever I wanted to. So... Um, so we then clearly needed money, so we got ProSonics involved. And, and they thought, oh, we better make this look right. So uh, this was actually the lab scale, which we did a lot of work on. Okay? Now we've got a column here, 
we realize it's better to go vertical, okay? You know, use a bit of gravity, of course. And then, of course, it doesn't really have much of an effect on two micron particles. But here's the sonication system here. This is driving the sonication here. There's a big horn here, okay, uh, which we, we, we used. Then we thought, right, okay, we don't want to do anything else. Fortunately, Prosonics did. So they are now, they scaled this up to a pilot scale here. Uh, they've got a bigger machine for shouting at it there. And, and again, you can see the original kind of columns here and the controls put in place. And this is now the more recent photo. So this is now housed in, in Switzerland, I think. Am I right, David? Switzerland. And now this is now producing... Uh, how, how much? <laughs> See, I've gone out, right? We're <laughs> uh, in the kilo kind of size, where, where I was in the grams, okay? So they've scaled this up, and, and it, I think it's now going into humans, okay? So basically... They've industrialized the whole process. So what have we made? Clearly, we will look at the particles, right? Uh, you can see here what we've been able to make, okay? So this is just the drug, right? So again, by shouting at it, we get the spherical particles. So if we get the conditions right, um, we can start to make these kind of nano kind of probes. You get to a problem, actually, when they become too small, they act like the gecko again. So even on the nanoscopic scale, you've got to get the dimensions right in order to get the benefit at the end of the day. And believe it or not, actually the best ones were, were these. Because these were looking, literally, you can see the contacts here were quite minimal. Just the jarred way they were uh, has, has the biggest effect. And you can see we can start to play with the most important term, which we really understood early on, which is the morphology, while maintaining control of the other things. Okay, just to end, um, w one thing we also got involved with, with, with again, with ProSonics, there's something happened, okay? You used to sell a drug A and sell a drug B, okay? These are the two uh, main candidates for asthma. Glaxo realized there was an opportunity, a market opportunity, to sell it in one device, mainly to get compliance with the steroid. People don't like taking the steroid. They just like taking the reliever. So putting the reliever with the steroid actually prevented incidence of asthma. But when they did this, they found that the benefit was greater than, much, much greater than expected. So they're like, oh, these two molecules actually do something on a cellular level. So what they, they term is known as synergistic action. And what they kind of said, and this is some images from them, what you need to do is get the two drugs sticking to one another, which is not, not difficult when they're this small, and deliver them as one. And then if they, they, they get delivered to a cell, they dissolve, and they get some synergistic action from a pharmacological point of view. Now we have, I work with Steve Ward from the department, we're doing this work with Charlotte, we're doing this, understand the pharmacology, I'm just delivering the particles, they are doing all the pharmacology, okay. But what we kind of realised, what we could do, was well, why don't we make every particle which has got the two ingredients in them? The process we've developed actually allows us to do that. So we're now able to do that, so you can see there's an image here, they're all respirable, we're actually putting the two ingredients into one particle. So every particle effectively is synergistic, not like Glaxo have got, I think they've got about 20%, they think, on average, working together. Why not make them 100%? Uh, and this is now going into, uh, again, into the clinics uh, in the coming years, I would say, not, 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 uh, not today or tomorrow. Um, okay, just to end, we've got a long way to go, okay? Uh, our research doesn't end. Um, we're highly inefficient, okay? FP, for example, 99 kilos of waste to make one kilo of product, okay? So this cartoon is not far off right, okay? The amount of waste, the amount of uh, greenhouse gases we evolved from pressurized in inhalers, uh, uh, leads to this. There's a lot of way to go. 
we still need batch processing. I can't trust it. So I've got to make one batch, all fails, passes. Oh, right, make another one. What we really need is a continuous process, which kind of evolves a, a, a long time. Okay, I'm going to end there. I'm just going to end with some um, thanks. Now, I don't do much work, right, experimental work, right? So you know, these are the people who, who somehow work for me and somehow do the work, right? So uh, I was very lucky to get a German, right, very organized early on, first PC, didn't drink alcohol, okay? I said, come to the pub. When you literally right from Germany, get to the pub, there's a Guinness night on, I don't drink. I thought, oh my God, what have I done? So, uh, but between Sebastian and Paul, you need a good start, right? And, and, and you're only as good as your last PhD student. I've always said that. And the, the success for me is what these guys are doing, okay? And they're all lecturers in Australia. They're all running plants in, in Germany, Switzerland, all types of things. They've all done very, very well, okay? Now, this is my current crop here. They're all in the audience. Uh, and, uh, and I've been working very closely. Jaggers in the audience here. He's, he's, these are postdocs. Okay? These get paid a lot more money, right? So these get a, lot, a salary. They, they're members of staff, okay? Uh, and these have been working for me. These are the PhD students here uh, within the group. The other thing I like to really thank is that in order to work with industry, somebody has got to bat your corner, right? Somebody's really got to back you. Otherwise, there's no chance. So you need champions within the industry, okay? And I've been very lucky. Some of them are Welsh, right? So that, that helps a lot, right? Um, but uh, you know, again, Sebastian, again, you make sure you keep your contacts, right? So uh, he uh, went to Novartis, looked after us. He's now the site director of Sandals, my first PhD student. He's the boss, basically. So um, it's quite easy to talk to him when I need some money, okay? Uh, and Philippe, again, backed me when nobody else would back me in AstraZeneca, and we've carried on working. So you need those people who are willing to just go that extra yard for you. Um, and again, David from Protonics, we work very, very closely. And John actually was the person I went to work with. So John Staniforth uh, took me from material science in, into pharmaceutics. He then built a very successful company. The university made a lot of money out of it. Uh, but he gave me a, a lot of money. So he actually looked after me when I needed it early on in my career. Uh, as he left, he made sure that he didn't close the door on me here. Uh, these are the couple of Welsh people here early on. They backed me early on, okay? Uh, and they kept funding me, and that was the important thing. And uh, more recently, we're now working with John uh, from DMV, which is based in Holland, uh, and James Tibbet is a one-man show, uh, but we're able to work very, very closely together and, again, develop some good ideas. Okay, just to end, you have to have money, right, to do research, and we're always looking for the money. And so I'm very grateful for mainly the companies, of course, of where I've backed most of it, but also been successful, I guess, with research councils, which is quite difficult in our research area. So thank you for your time and attention.